Himalayas Studios. Here's the thing about Sam Sanders. He is possibly one of the most optimistic people I've ever met in this business. The promise I've, I made with my audience early on was optimism. It just mm. is. And so that doesn't mean that I'm always optimistic. In fact, I'm a negative Nancy. But <laughs> what I'm giving my listeners in the show is optimism. And so I can save my negativity. I can save my fears. I can save the nasty side of me for my friends. And I do. You know, like, mm. I think people who really know me and are really close to me know that I'm kind of a sarcastic bastard <laughs> and like a little bit of an <laughs> asshole but that's for that's i don't need to bring that to the mic because i didn't promise my listeners that i promise some optimism you know sam is the host of npr's radio show and podcast it's been a minute and he says his ultimate goal isn't just to inform and create conversation i think that my relationship with them primarily is to be a proxy for them and so I want to approach every conversation with the curiosity that I think they would have about the world. And in general, that is not being afraid to come to a conversation or a news interview and say, to quote George W. Bush, like, that was some weird shit. <laughs> From Elias Studios, this is Servant of Pod. I'm Nick Kwa. This week, Sam Sanders and the power of good vibes. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. When I talked to Sam, he just spent almost seven months in his hometown with his family, and he learned a valuable lesson while he was there. The most grounding thing for me was like to be in Texas. I'd be working from home all day, be obsessed with some Twitter drama, and then I would go to my mother's house and see my mother and my brother, and they'd ask how my day went. Yeah. And I'd be like, I can't, I can't tell you about this thing because it only <laughs> makes sense if you're on Twitter, which means it doesn't really matter. So yeah, my day was fine. Like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that it, like just just realizing like half of the stuff that our industry is just consumed with yeah. a lot of other people aren't they just aren't and that's fine sam is fantastic at presenting the crux of the issue with just the right amount of humor levity and comfort and that's what he brings to it's been a minute the first time you let it go to voicemail, you let Trump all three, go to voicemail. So he called me three times. All three times it went to voicemail because I wasn't in my office, or the, or my or my assistant got the call. Or you saw the words Donald Trump on your phone. I and did. Said, Ugh. I, 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 didn't. I didn't. I just happened. That is Preet Bharara. He is a lawyer and former federal prosecutor, and Preet got those phone calls just after Trump got elected, when Preet was still U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York. Barack Obama appointed Preet Bharara. And he expected to resign from his post when Trump took office. 
because that's how it usually works. But Preet stayed at Trump's request. And then the phone calls began, which was weird. So Preet told the White House that he wanted to loop in the Department of Justice with these calls. 20 hours later, he fired you. He did. He did. I, you know, every time someone famous got fired, my mom, you know, grew happier. It's like, oh, Jim Comey, oh, it's a pretty good club to be in. <laughs> Preet says he is still not entirely sure why he got fired. On our best weeks, we are this wonderful cross between, like, a news magazine covering several topics, uh, a long-form interview show in the spirit of, I don't know, fresh air, yeah. and a little, like, morning drive, shock jock, fun, hilarious antics sprinkled on top. Yeah. And so that has been the the kind of special sauce, I think, throughout the entire show. But I think particularly in light of the pandemic and the racial justice movement of last year, we kind of allowed some more emotional space for the show. So the show was always also about like the news itself and what's going on and, and, and the zeitgeist, but also about how it all feels. And so yeah. we tried to create this space in which we could laugh at stuff or poke fun at stuff or be emotional about stuff. And we, I realized once the pandemic hit, before pandemic, before George Floyd, we were looking for ways to help people laugh at the week of absurdity in the news. Yeah. And I realized in 2020, people also needed a space to cry about the news and just like get emotional and have some yeah. deep conversations that like tap at the heartstrings. So we've been doing that too. So I don't know where I'm going with this, but I think that like the emotional thrust of the show has perhaps tilted a bit from what you might have heard in 2017 or 18. But I think that was smart and needed because the tenor of the country has changed too. It's Been a Minute was meant to be a replacement for the classic NPR show, Car Talk. The plan was a show that would inform listeners about the week's news in a lighthearted way. And that's exactly how it started. Hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Betty, today's guest from the New York Times, reporter Katie Rogers, and one of the hosts of NPR's All Things Considered, Ari Shapiro. All right, let's start the show. Amazing. I love your Aunt Betty. <laughs> I, I do, too. I do, too. Thanks, Aunt Betty. Yeah, we back. Wait, do you get a theme song? I'm going to tell you all about this. <gasps> I pick one every week. Amazing. Hey, y'all. Sam Sanders here. It's been a minute. You heard Aunt Betty. Now you're hearing Chance the Rapper. We'll talk about this song and her and so much more. But first, Welcome. But the show changed last year as the world became a dumpster fire. What's crazy, Nick, is that after we began to pivot the show in the midst of coronavirus, but we really kind of just made a full turn in the aftermath of the George Floyd death and protest. And in the week after our first George Floyd episodes began to run, our podcast audience in terms of just like sheer users per week, it doubled. And then the hmm. next week, it tripled, and it never really stopped. So we're, our audience number still, right now, users per week is double what it was before George Floyd. It's baffling to me. Well, I want to unpack that a little bit, because It's Been a Minute isn't the only show that's experienced that tremendous level of growth over the past year. Um, Code Switch also had a similar uptick, and I've heard of other shows that have seen that too, especially ones hosted by people of color. Could you talk to me a little bit more about that? I think there are a few things that happened. I think that, like, 
there was no way to ignore it anymore. That mm. groundswell of activism, you wanted to understand it. And anyone who was talking about it in a thoughtful way, people were drawn to that. Yeah. So we were doing that. And two, I think that it was really a moment in which across all different kinds of podcast platforms, everyone just worked together. I remember in those weeks after George Floyd, everyone was like, how can we showcase the content that's speaking to this moment? Hmm. And so Apple and Spotify and Stitcher and all these other platforms were so eager to reach out to us and to others and just say, how do we get this stuff out there? So when you sort of witnessed the, the numbers doubling and tripling, um, did it like, you know, did it bring you more anxiety? Like how, how does that feel internally in your position being the face of this thing? It's, it's bittersweet. Um, hmm. I think you never want to think that some of your professional success came at, came through the death of a black man. Hmm. That hurts. And I'm still processing that. I hope that the work that I've done in the aftermath of his death honors his legacy and his memory and the cause of what all this activist work has been the last year, which is for the police to stop killing us, right? Hmm. So I hope that I've help spread that message but it is weird you know in the same way that it was weird to see the npr politics podcast really jump off and boost my career a few years ago because of donald trump and all of the bad things he was doing hmm. this is a profession in which we have to make peace with success often built in the ruins of disaster or on the ruins of disaster hmm. and it's never it's never pretty you never are not queasy about it, but that is the nature of the work. Do you think that's like unique to the news business? I don't know if it's just unique to us, but I think we really have to think about what we do with that. Hmm. I think especially coming out of four years of Trump and hopefully at some point coming out of more than a year of pandemic, we need to think about whether our work is speaking to these national moments of crisis or exploiting them hmm. and my goal is to never exploit and so what i want to do is not sensationalize not overhype just speak truth to the moment um there is definitely an undercurrent of fear-mongering that we see in a lot of news coverage from a lot of platforms that i won't name but my goal is to not do that and my goal hmm. is to make sure that whatever conversation i'm having on my show every week you leave it feeling a little better about the state of the world than worse because no one can fix the problems that we're facing right now if they are only depressed and scared of them. Hmm. Like we can't, we, we've got to find a way to look at the world bright eyed. You know, I, I know that sounds so naive, but I'm serious, you know? So like, I just, I don't want to fucking depress people. I yeah. want to inform you and make you feel like you're ready to go face it again the next day because these problems are still going to be here the next fucking day. How do you think about your relationship to your listeners? It is comforting, I think, and welcoming to audiences when a host is having a news conversation where they also accept the weirdness and strangeness and baffling nature of the current state of the world. Yeah. And so I try to be open to that. I think the era of, like, voice of God NPR host where they just knew everything and were perfect. That doesn't work. Yeah. It doesn't work. And I'm going to forge a stronger connection with my audience and ask better questions. If I come to them and come to these conversations with the same <laughs> anxieties they have, you know, and the same <laughs> like, whoa, what is this-ness 
that they have, right? Yeah, I feel like you really put yourself out there. Um, so I'm curious, where do you draw the line on what you share about yourself with your listeners? Yeah, you know, I think at the start when Brent Bachman and I began to make the show, we decided to make it a little more full of personality than your typical news show. And in that regard, I would like talk about my life when it felt pertinent to conversations and people know about me and people hear from my Aunt Betty in the show. And like, mm. I talk about music I like and things that I do, et cetera. And I have opinions about like culture. But there are some things I don't share. I think that like, um, it's funny. Like I talk about my Aunt Betty on the show, but I really don't talk about my family. She's really it, you know? Um, yeah. Because she also kind of signed up for it, too. When we asked her early on to be one of the voices in the show, she knew what she was getting into, right? And then I think the other thing is just, like, I share a lot about my personal interests, but I don't share a lot about, like, my personal life and my friendships or, like, romantic relationships. That's just, like, no. That's not, that's not for consumption. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, those are the kind of dividing lines. But, like, who knows? I am also the kind of person where if you talk to me long enough... I will tell you everything. I just can't help it. So I sit here and say, here are the things I won't discuss. But yeah. ask me in six months, I probably will have broken that rule. Sam's journey from band geek to NPR and his take on whiteness in public radio. More in a minute. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. Okay, Sam, so how did you get into public media in the first place? I was a total band nerd. Uh, what, like uh, like marching band or like band band? Marching band, jazz band, symphonic band. I did it all. I was a drum major oh, in the you, marching band. You were, you were in jazz band? I was in jazz band as well. I was band president. I ended up majoring in college in music composition. Like I was a music oh, no nerd. Way. Yeah, but... Uh, after high school, both of my parents got really sick at the same time. So mm. I took a year off to just take care of them. And that kind of just changed everything for me. I kind of stepped into a caregiver role for them at a very young age, which was life-altering. And I also just, literally, they stopped driving me around, and I began to drive them around. And that yeah. was when I was able to control the radio dial and just have on NPR a lot. And so that was when I kind of discovered public radio as I was, like, driving around taking care of my parents. Yeah. But in general, I think a 17-, 18-year-old me was – Totally nerdy, totally curious about the world, and totally obsessed with, like, the way things sounded. After graduating from the University of the Incarnate Word in San Antonio, Sam went to the Kennedy School at Harvard to get his master's degree. 
you're around all of these crazily driven people, half of whom want to run for president one day, but they all come in knowing like what they want to do with their lives after the Kennedy School. That was not me. Instead, he rediscovered public media and decided to pursue it as a career. He ended up interning and doing his master's thesis at WBUR, one of Boston's NPR affiliates. And even though Sam didn't end up in politics like many of his Harvard classmates, he says there was one big takeaway from being in that space. The biggest lesson of the Kennedy School was they're just like you. Like, you're, you're around these world leaders all the time. Yeah. And they are just trying to find the bathroom like you are, right? Like, I'll never forget, I was, like, late for class one day, and I'm walking through the main building on campus trying to not be late. And this guy stops me and says, where's the bathroom? And I was like, dude, I'm late. I, I don't know. Just turn to your left. <laughs> and so I start to, like, run away because I'm late. And I look over, and it was John Kerry. And it was just like, okay, you know, like <laughs> when you spend two years with in, in that kind of space, you just get over all of the pretense and all of the hype around these people that we see on TV. They're just people. In, yeah. you know, so I, I think like I've tried doing my work, have that kind of rapport with all of my guests. Like I'm not going to bow down before you. You're a person. Let's just connect. I feel like there's this constant in your work that um, really speaks to a more nuanced way to practice journalism, if that makes sense. Um, like you tell the story truthfully, but also with a lot of feeling, you know, and, and historically that's something journalists have been told to keep out of your work. News stories are never just fact. All of it's emotional. You mm. can't tell the full story of the Trump years without talking about how his emotions played into everything that he did. You can't tell the story of the insurrection without talking about a powerful emotion called racism, right? And I think that, like, I've always, from my time doing breaking news to politics to now, tried to really convey in my work that, like, no news story is just is, is ever just facts. It's about flawed people and how they feel about shit. And mm. usually those emotions around the stuff are much more important and much more consequential than the facts. We are emotional and flawed human beings, and if we don't account for that in our news reporting, we don't get to the full story. You know, it's it's like for years we wanted to call racism, you know, economic anxiety because in our rational lizard journalist brains we were like, <laughs> well, it, it has to be about money. It can't just be about yeah. people not liking other people. It's about people not liking other people. That's what it's always about, you know? Yeah. And so that for me, I think, has been the unifying theme of the work. Like this stuff is emotional and you have to acknowledge that. It's also every conversation about who we are as a country now and the big issues of our day are rooted in issues of identity. You know, what does it mean to be rich? What does it mean to be poor in America? What does it mean to be black or white? Hmm. What does it mean to be a woman or a man right now? And how does all of those different experiences affect how we see the world and what we want? You know, there was a time in which reporting from places like NPR might treat all civilians as equal, but we're, we're different. And we approach these stories differently based on our experiences. And we live our lives and live the news differently based on who we are and those experiences. And so the goal is to have a show that speaks to that pervasive nature of identity. Who we are affects everything. And how we, and, 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 and bigger than that, how we think of who we are affects everything. I want to follow this thread a little bit regarding news and identity. So public media is overwhelmingly white. So is the audience. Um, you're black. Your show covers a wide range of topics. So I'm curious, what kind of role does code switching have when you're making It's Been a Minute? It's, how do I say this? I, I, 
I've been a black man my entire life. Mm. I didn't start code switching at NPR, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like, (laughs) I code switch in life, you know? Mm. And I think it was what made me a good reporter before I was a good host. You just get really comfortable being able to do whatever it takes to have a conversation with any kind of person wherever you are when you're a person of color. And I've never been ashamed to code switch. I think it's a superpower. And I do it. (laughs) And I think that's why the show works. And I think that, like, (laughs) yeah, white folks, you should try it, too. It's a fucking good interview (laughs) tactic. I don't know. Like, I'm not, like, code switching is not a dirty word, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's just not. And as long as I've been working in audio, as long as I've been a journalist, I've used this innate ability I have to code switch to get the goddamn story. And... I'm not ashamed of it. I'm just not. <laughs> when I'm interviewing a guest, I want to code switch enough to make them feel comfortable while still being me. So I'm going to talk to yeah. a national security expert in a different way than I talk to an actor or actress. Duh, right? That's code switching. <laughs> but there's also yeah. a thing that I think a lot of public radio watchers misconstrue as code switching, and that is explaining. So my show exists in two spaces. It is a podcast, and it's also a radio show on public radio stations on the weekend. So the average age of the audience for that weekend radio is like 55 plus. And the average Mm. age for the podcast audience is like 20 years younger, perhaps more, right? And so I need to make sure that when I reference a meme that like my radio listeners can like get it without having to Google. Yes, they can Google, we all have that skill, But also, you're listening on the radio. I want you to just keep listening and not, like, pause to Google. (laughs) And so that's not code switching. That's just making a pleasant listener experience on both platforms. Like, Mm -hmm. it cost me nothing to to have a seven-second qualifier about what that internet thing is. Yeah. Doesn't hurt. What do you think is, like, the biggest misunderstanding people have when having this conversation about code switching and representation in the media? Uh, I think it can be a euphemism. I think it's like we blanket we blanket conversations about the awkwardness of talking across race as all of it being code switching when actually just be specific about what it is. Is the problem, you know, different audiences needing different levels of background to understand a topic? Is the problem some of our white audiences not being open to just hearing new stuff? Is the problem trying to fit new creatives of color in these old white boxes that just doesn't work, right? So, like, Mm. we blanket all those conversations with the term code switching when, in fact, specificity about what you're really fucking talking about would Mm. help. And so I want to make sure that when I'm having a conversation about how race affects my work, that I'm being as specific as possible. I also think part of the work is challenging who our listeners think public radio is for, I think that the most ornery listeners, and it is a small minority of the folks writing us letters, but the most ornery listeners write about public radio not with a sense of why did you code switch or I didn't understand that. They write with a certain sense of possession and ownership of public radio. Hmm. And the tenor that comes out of their letters, and I've got to double down and say this is a fraction, a small fraction of all letters we get. But what they're really saying is, well, this is my public radio, and I want it to sound the way that I am used to it sounding, which is stuff catered just to me, an older 
usually coastal, usually liberal, affluent, degreed elite. Hmm. And what they're really saying is that I only want public radio to really cater to my whims. And what I want to say to those audiences with my show every week is public radio is for all kinds of people. And maybe I'm not making my show with you in mind as the central most important listener, but that's okay because there can be shows that exist in public radio for everybody, made Hmm. by everybody. Okay, so we started off the show talking about your optimism, and I want to end with that too. Do you have a personal philosophy on optimism? I think I've decided now that like happiness and optimism and, and joy is a choice. Hmm. Choose it. You choose it every day. You choose to tell yourself a story. You tell yourself a story of optimism or of pessimism. Tell yourself the story of optimism. Tell yourself it's going to be a great day. Tell yourself you look fucking good. Tell yourself you're doing the best you can. It's okay, right? Like, tell yourself that. And I think that, like, a lot of times we think that happiness or optimism is a thing in which we have to have the perfect set of conditions to feel that way. When, in fact, optimism and happiness is just making a certain number of choices every day. Hmm. It does me no favors to be mean to myself, It does us no favors to not be kind to ourselves and to believe, to believe that we're beautiful beings. Like we should believe that we're beautiful beings who can do beautiful things in spite of whatever. It's just better that way and you're happier that way. And that's what I try to tell myself and that's what I try to convey to my audiences. Sam, thank you so much for speaking with me. I really appreciate it. All right, thank you, this was fun. Servant Pod is written and hosted by me, Nick Kwa. You can check out more episodes at alias.com slash Pod. The show is produced by Andrea Swahe and James Trout at Rococo Punch. Web design by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Southern California Public Radio. Logo and branding by Leo G. Thanks to the team at Elias Studios, including Christian Hayford, Taylor Kaufman, Kristen Muller, and Leo G. Servant Pod is a production of Elias Studios. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events.